Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series today, The Church, let's turn in our Bibles to Acts 14, 25, and Titus 1, verse 5, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Of Denominations and Organizations. I don't know how often I've heard it, but it goes something like this. I believe in the local church. I just hate the politics. And since politics and the lust for power is a part of every human endeavor, even the religious ones, this statement doesn't surprise us. What people mean is they don't like the jockeying for power. Am I telling you a tightly held secret if I tell you that men who love power also tend to drift towards church leadership? Well, it's no secret at all. We all know it. Sex is the aphrodisiac of young men and power is the aphrodisiac of old men. Phone calls are made, meetings are held to solidify a power base. Strategies are discussed as to how better to further both an agenda and an outcome. And by the time a vote comes forward or a group of leaders meet to discuss a vision or a goal or a decision, well, these men show up already having finalized their plans. The politics have been done. Others approach the meeting, think that, you know, they'll discuss an agenda, but they don't know the discussion is over. It's already been accomplished out of the sight of the majority, and that's politics. And the outcome depends on how you see it. Well, those in power think it good strategy, but others eventually realize their power has been stripped from them. And most of us know that this kind of thing is the very thing that destroys churches and harms the spiritual life of people and even ruins the reputation of the gospel. And for that reason, we hear people say, I believe in the local church, I just hate the politics. And just so that we're clear, I hate it too. This kind of a thing is evil because it's disrespectful of others, cares very little for them, and it tends to manipulate them. So let's back up just a bit. Out of this kind of thing, some say, I just don't like organized religion. But how many of you know that whether it's a small group of people, no matter what it is, everything needs organization. It does absolutely no good to say you don't like organized religion or organized Christianity. I mean, I say as opposed to what? Disorganized Christianity. See, organization is always required. When shall the church meet? Someone or some group of people needs to organize that. Who's going to preach? Who's going to lead worship? Which missionary should you call? And how should you support them? Now, what will be our response to the poor or to the lost and disenfranchised? Organization is always required. To say you don't believe in organized Christianity is like saying you don't believe in Christianity as a movement. No, no. What you should be saying is you don't like the abuse of power. So let's talk about yeah, church government. You know, a common misconception about church government is that while the church itself is of divine origin, its governance is an entirely human invention. You know, some claim that the Bible deals only with the theology of the church and what the church should believe, obey, and teach, and what its goals are, not how it's to be organized. You know, if that were the case, we might conclude, you know, any number of forms of church government would be just as acceptable before our Lord as any other. And then we'd assume that since the Bible gives no clear guidance regarding structure, we're supposed to create one using our best wisdom. 
We then compare the effectiveness of you know, various models, and we use the best models for structuring our organization. And to many people, that makes very good sense. See, that view of things would allow the church to adapt itself to a variety of different settings and then maximize its freedom of organization in any context. You know, indeed, some argue that models found in successful businesses can provide models of entrepreneurial growth of the church that can make the gospel go forward. And some even argue that God has engineered the truth and it's up to us to market it effectively. See, a great many local churches and their leaders simply assume that's the case. But that assumption prevents a thorough Bible study examining what Scripture actually teaches about the way a local church is supposed to be governed. See, the outcome is often that the church is governed by human wisdom and human methodology. Is it really true that Christ is the head of the church, but he allows us to organize it as we see best? See, methodology really does affect the message. Are we proclaimers of the glory of God in the face of Christ? Or are we just marketers attempting to capture our share of the religious marketplace? You know, do we manipulate the product to meet consumer demand? Or do we present the excellencies of that which can't be perfected or must never be manipulated? See, the differences in approach are vast. Now, I don't mean to imply that there are clear directives in the Bible as to, you know, whether your church should have a, you know, an annual general meeting or whether you should have a congregational vote on, you know, the budget. I mean, clearly there's a great deal of freedom given to each local church to conduct her affairs in the way that's deemed best in every local situation. But we do find all matter of indications that there is an underlying structure that was there in every New Testament church. Let me give two examples of just that. Acts 14.23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. That was the beginning of Paul's missionary work. He was preaching the gospel where it had never been heard before. Men and women were being one to faith in Christ, and they were baptized. Paul then formed these new converts into a church, and he appointed their leadership structure. Every church had elders who were appointed by Paul and his team. And then with fasting and with prayer, no doubt in the presence of the entire church, they would appoint them to the work of providing spiritual oversight to that church. And Paul continued to repeat that same formula for his life. Listen to how he writes to Titus near the end of his life, Titus 1 verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. See, in every town, in every place where there was a local church, appoint elders to lead that local church. Let them bring order to that church. Now, come back to who the elders are and what the elders do. But before we do that, notice that Paul is also very clear about the qualifications that ought to mark an elder. He articulates those in not just one place, but in two. Listen to what he tells Titus, Titus 1, 6-9. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. 
he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, here we get both a view of who the elder is and what the elder does. The elder is a model of what it means to live as a Christian. What the elder does, well, the elder knows the Bible and Christian doctrine extremely well and is able to disciple, to teach, to direct the church, you know, not in finances and organizations, but in the gospel, in the faith. That's why elders are there. That's what they do. And that's basic. And from that basis, Christians have historically divided the church structure of the church into what might be called three different organizational forms. And what I'm about to share here will help you, my listener, understand, and I hope also to appreciate your local church. Let's talk about the forms of church government and hang in there. Don't let your eyes glaze over. You know, many people don't understand why their church is structured the way it is, and I'm trying to explain. There are not endless varieties of different forms of church government. All ways of organizing a local church can be broadly placed into three categories. And before we begin, let me make a few brief observations of how the early church developed. You know, the church began on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. After the conversion of the first 3,000 people, you know, following Peter's sermon, well, it became necessary to organize them in some fashion. So at the very outset, we learn from Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. So we can see that teaching was done by the apostles and that the rest of the community devoted themselves to what the apostles taught. No doubt fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers were directed by the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching was primary. In many ways, that's not surprising. I mean, who else would teach but those people that were mentored by Jesus himself? And along the way, as the church progressed, the matter became more complicated. Teaching remained the primary task, but it wasn't the only task. You know, the church and fellowship is always about so much more, and that means trouble arose. Well, it always does. Last month, Back to the Bible Canada shared the exciting news that our young adult ministry in doubt has welcomed Andrew Marcus as its new host and director. After much prayer and planning, InDoubt is ready to relaunch this month with exciting new programming. In addition to our regular weekly radio program and podcast, you can now access on YouTube and InDoubt.ca the InDoubt Show. New episodes will be posted every Monday, featuring guests well-equipped to speak into the challenges of faith, life, and culture that so many young adults are facing today. Humor, fun, but most importantly, a source of biblical truth for those in doubt. Be sure to check out our In Doubt YouTube channel or podcast and share the word with other young adults in your lives. Stay tuned for more exciting news in the weeks ahead. And for more information or to support this important ministry, visit indoubt.ca. A dispute arose regarding the daily distribution of food. So it seems that some felt that priority was given to one group over another, and that sounds like how things always go. And then we learn the priority of teaching. 
See, the apostles refused to get involved. Acts 6 indicates that the 12, meaning the apostles, called the church together and told them to appoint seven men of good reputation and filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom to give themselves to this task. And we're not told if the church had a congregational meeting and put nominations forward, anything like that. I mean, the Bible doesn't give us the details of how every decision was made, but however they did it, the church chose men who would give leadership to the distribution of food to the poor widows. Why did the apostles refuse to become involved in that? Would not their oversight have helped that process along? Well, most leadership teams today, you know, would have been all over that, but the apostles refused to be involved. See, they reasoned that whatever advantage they could have gained, it would have been offset by a greater loss. The apostles were completely clear on what was their primary responsibility. Acts 6 verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so we see a very early approach to church government. The apostles gave direction to teaching and the spiritual mission of the church. They even told the church how to solve the problem with the distribution of food, but they refused to become directly involved. And the reason for that approach is so important to grasp. Nothing must keep the apostles from that which is of ultimate value. They had to safeguard that. We're well advised to note this to be the Achilles heel of many churches. Leadership teams often become involved in hundreds of details. Every conceivable ministry need is discussed, solutions are offered, and meetings go on endlessly. But in so doing, the primary issue of teaching, which gives rise to fellowship and communion and prayer, that's often neglected. And so the early church crossed this first hurdle, a clear delineation of roles. And many years and many churches are planted. And by the time we come to the end of the pastoral epistles, Paul gives directives both to Timothy and Titus. In effect, summarizing what has been done in every church that was planted. Elders had to be appointed in every congregation because there weren't enough apostles to go around for every church. The elders in each local church performed the same duties that the apostles performed in Jerusalem. Elders were called upon to lead, to give oversight to the church. But as we're going to see, they, like the apostles, must not be distracted from the main thing, prayer, the ministry of the word. A different group of people would have to be appointed to care for everyday ministry needs. See, that second group are the deacons who concern themselves with everyday practical matters, making sure the money is used properly, all that kind of stuff. See, this New Testament practice has led to the various forms of church government we see today. See, if we can agree that the apostolic office was unique, it's not repeated, then according to the New Testament, there are only two ongoing offices in every local church today. There are elders and there are deacons, not elders and pastors and deacons. No, no. Elder is the title. Pastor is what the elder does. He shepherds the flock, he cares, he teaches, he corrects, he gives spiritual oversight. Deacons are servants who deal with the everyday practical matters, everything from administration to making sure that everyone is using their gifts in ministry. So let's turn from that to how denominations function in our world. As I've said, there are three different models. 
Well, the first is the Episcopalian form of government. And the term episcopal comes from the Greek word episkopos. And the term is most often translated as overseer in our English Bibles. Indeed, almost all Bible teachers agree that the Greek term presbyteros, translated as elder, and the Greek term episkopos, translated as overseer, well, those two words describe the same office. The use of the two terms indicates the difference of function that exists within that one office, but the two terms describe the same office. Now, most Bible teachers also note that soon after the death of the apostles, the church in the early days began to develop an altogether new office not found in the New Testament, and that new office came from the Greek term episkopos. Remember that that word is often translated as overseer. So it was thought the term overseer was an apt title to use for someone who oversaw a large number of churches. Another word for overseer, that's the word bishop. You know, soon the word episkopos became translated exclusively as bishop, that is, in the mind of many Christians. A bishop was a man who was given authority or oversight over a host of churches, either in one city or in one region. So, for instance, Polycarp. He was the very famous disciple of the Apostle John. He became the bishop of Smyrna, meaning that he oversaw every church in that city. And that meant he was responsible to assure that the elders in each local fellowship or local church were held accountable to the apostolic doctrine. So bishops guarded the church from heresy and together with other bishops gave leadership to the expanding global Christian movement. Bishops then in this system of government are those men who have authority over a number of churches. And occasionally, bishops from numerous areas meet together and discuss and make decisions about the global church. Well, that's one form of government. Second, there's another form. It's called the Presbyterian form of church government. And that form of government takes its usage from the Greek term presbyteros or elder. Opposing the hierarchical form of government found in the Episcopalian model, Presbyterian government wants more power to be given to local congregations. So Presbyterians will argue that the churches need some way of being accountable to a wider body of believers. And those holding Presbyterian leadership, just like those holding Episcopal leadership, argue that a body that oversees the local church should ordain and appoint pastors for that local church. And that body alone is given the authority both to start up as well as close down local churches. But they argue that those who oversee the local church ought to arise from the local church. That is, leadership arises from the bottom and not from the top. Well, that's a second form of leadership. And then third and finally, there's a congregational style of church government. And in this form, it's the local congregation and the local congregation alone, not a ruling body over them, who appoints the elders for their church. Indeed, in this form of government, all the choices of the local church are made at the local level. Even the decision to remove a teaching pastor is given to the members of the congregation and not to a body of elders who oversee all of the churches. Now, there are countless subcategories under this model. You know, for those congregational churches that belong to a denomination, the system is quite simple. 
the denomination will ask all local churches to hold to the same statement of faith. They might also demand that the senior elder or the senior pastor of a local church should be interviewed by a denominational body in order to be approved. But the denomination can't install the pastor. Only the local congregation can do that. And furthermore, denominations also provide things that local churches can do. They provide things like, well, missions agencies, camps, Bible colleges, and so forth. But within congregational churches, there are at least a number of different forms. I mean, one form is the form of a single pastor government. You know, single-pastor forms of church government are sometimes also called single-elder-led churches. You know, in this system, the congregation typically elects a pastor, and depending on the structure, there are varying degrees of authority that pastor may hold, and in some of these churches, the pastor is pretty much king. I've also found this method of government to be curious because nowhere in the New Testament do we ever find a single-elder ruling a church. In every place, in every church, as we've seen, Paul appointed multiple elders. Well, a second form of congregational government is the democratic form. So if the Episcopalian form of government is one end of the spectrum, you know, this form of church government is at the far end of the other side. In this way of thinking, any church vote can set the direction of the church. And a third form of congregational government is called multiple elder leadership in which a group of elders direct the affairs at the local level. Well, I've not sought to argue for one form or another. I've simply sought to explain. I want you to appreciate that organization is not opposed to the purposes of God, but it is meant to be used to accomplish what Christ wants us to accomplish. Thanks for your message, John. You know, I know many churches or denominations are governed differently, but would you say there are red flags to how the local church governs itself? Yeah, I mean, I want to make sure I'm I'm very gracious here and and recognizing that, you know, some churches have, you know, very clear um, what they think are theological reasons for the way in which they're governed, but there are some places where we color outside the lines, and we need to be careful about that. I think one of those places is that if we put all the authority on one person who can call the shots in every way and even change statements of faith, I've seen that being done. That's just out of court. I think the other side is to say that a church is so democratic that everything is up for a vote. I mean, even what she believes or the cause for which she lives for it, those are all both wrong. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, The Church, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Every day we're so grateful and humbled at how God is blessing this ministry and broadening its reach. We want to share that Back to the Bible Canada has recently eclipsed 5,000 subscribers on YouTube. Thank you so much to everyone who has supported and tuned in. If you've never visited the YouTube channel before, be sure to check it out at Back to the Bible Canada and consider leaving a comment while you're there. One listener recently wrote, I've been a daily listener to the broadcast for a number of years. I'm especially grateful for Dr. John's teaching that God has used to correct, to guide, and to encourage me in the faith. There are times when it seems like the message is designed 
exactly for me. For more information or to support Back to the Bible Canada with a financial gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.